Hello, everybody, and welcome yet again to another installment of the Check Down Charlie's podcast. I'm your host, Eric. I'm here with Theo. What's up, Theo? Another man just uh, eating my croissant, drinking my coffee before we start this again. Hurry up with my damn croissant. I mean, we were just talking about Kanye West before this for some reason, so uh, makes sense that you'd be eating a croissant. Homemade, home baked. (laughs) Oh, nice. That sounds good. Yeah. We had these, uh, like, three uh, grilled cheese sandwiches yesterday with, like, homemade bread that were, like, proper, like, so good. They were absolutely just delicious. Everyone's, have, everyone's, like, learned a little bit of bacon since yeah. uh, this pandemic, so. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I know multiple people that, yeah, I mean, my mom got, like, a sourdough starter, so that's one of the things of, like, yeah, why don't we take up baking, but... Uh, we're baking up a podcast for you. How's that for a segue? <laughs> so what do we got on the table right now? Where we left off was the 1985 season for the Giants. So basically, they'd made it to the playoffs at that point. They had lost to the eventual Super Bowl champions, which were the 1985 Chicago Bears. Uh, they got blanked in that game, so they lost uh, 21 to nothing. But at the same time, things were kind of looking up for the Giants heading into 1986. Um, yeah, they were definitely trending in that in the upwards direction because, as we had mentioned, like those seasons where Parcells had taken over, they were going head-to-head with some of the league's best. Mm-hmm. To quote Bill Walsh, there's only really eight teams in it. And if within the season you're actually competing with them, you're definitely on the way to win the Super Bowl. Exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it. The core of players that we had described before, like Lawrence Taylor and, you know, Phil Simms was there. So they had the kind of the franchise building blocks and they had made it to the playoffs. But actually at the beginning of the season, we had made some allusions to Lawrence Taylor having some problems with, uh, you know, substance abuse, basically. And he'd actually spent some time in a rehab facility before the season due to his uh, his substance abuse issues. So that was kind of, I guess, something brewing up for the Giants at the beginning of the season. But then he had spent time in rehab, had had the support of his team fully and, and, you know, got back to the team eventually. There was also, you know, Phil Simms, again, had started to improve his play a little bit. The offense was opening up. Parcells has kind of chosen to stick with Phil Simms, even though he had been booed previously at one point in the season for not playing very well, and, you know, I didn't want to kind of relive that quarterback controversy that had gone on between him and and Scott Bruner. So another weapon that had kind of emerged for the Giants was the tight end Mark Bavaro. So he ended up being probably a weapon that's very similar to, let's say, George Kittle. I made that comparison just because... Mm -hmm. In week four of the 1986 season against the Saints, Mark Bavaro actually had to have his jaw wired shut. And he came back into the game and scored the game-winning touchdown after that. Another Um, Kanye reference? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He played through the wire. (laughs) That's a good one. I did not even catch that one. But yeah, he actually didn't miss any games. And then in week 13 as well, the the Giants played a pivotal game against the 49ers, who obviously, you know, coached by Bill Walsh, were kind of perennial rivals of the Giants at that time. But Bavaro had a a catch and run in that game that was very reminiscent of 
George Kittle's play against the Saints in 2019. Do you remember that, Theo? Yeah. <laughs> that catch along the sideline where he drags a bunch of people and yeah, most definitely forward. they went into New Orleans and they ended up beating them to like a really high score. Exactly. Exactly. So before Kittle did that, Bavaro had something very similar where he dragged multiple defenders to a first down for his team. He had over a thousand yards in the season and he was named to the Pro Bowl in that year. So they were progressing. I mean, all in all, they were progressing as, you know, a heavy favorite to make the playoffs and to obviously win. However, there was an anecdote in week 16 where the Giants almost blew a 24-point lead against the Packers. So at halftime, they were down. And the Packers at that point were kind of a bottom-of-the-barrel team. Like, they weren't really doing very well. So it would have been a, a pretty big upset. But at halftime, Parcells actually took a barrel full of trash from the dressing room and dumped it all over his defensive players and said, you guys belong in here with the rest of this shit, basically. Can you imagine a, a play, uh, coach doing that nowadays? Oh, my God. I mean... I <laughs> that would be that would get him fired for sure. I think. Yeah, that's that would definitely not blow over well if it got leaked to the media. No, definitely but, not. But you know what? I feel like Parcells has always had a good read on doing things based on circumstance. Mm-hmm. So like they're losing that game, but it's week sixteen and they're going to the playoffs. Yeah. So it's not necessarily as bad as if a coach would have done it and they were two and 14 and he essentially lost half the locker room Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's exactly it he i feel knew how to keep peace to a certain extent yeah i mean he makes an allusion to it actually in finding a way to win where he quotes himself you know doing this the story. What he said was, you kind of have to have a feel for the way a team is and the way a team responds to certain motivational tactics. So what he said was, you know, he knew that he would be able to do it with the 1986 team because they had already been to the playoffs multiple times. They had already been used to the adversity. And like, Mm -hmm. they had a lot of veteran players at that point that were able to handle the fiery kind of backlash. Whereas he said, if I had tried that with the team in 1990, it wouldn't have gone over very well because we had a lot of young players. You know what I mean? That kind of needed to be motivated differently. Yeah. So exactly. And then you have veteran veterans like LT and Harry Carson on the team. Mm-hmm. So they know how to read that situation well. And they sort of set the tone for the younger guys. So even if the younger guys take that in a weird way, they're just looking to the veterans Exactly. You know? And going back to Mark Bavaro, I feel like the the main reason I know him in my generation is because after the uh, 2011 season where the Patriots drafted Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez mm-hmm. and had used them in all these multiple ways. And then you see this emergence of like the tight end with Gronk and um, Jimmy Graham like scoring so many touchdowns. Yeah, I know that Belichick and the Patriots organization credits Bavaro to many of the ways they utilize the tight ends in New England. Right. Hmm. Because it was sort of, Bavaro was like that flex option in the 80s. Right. And it wasn't as common as, as it is today. 
Yeah, I mean, I mentioned earlier that he had a thousand yards and that he made it to the Pro Bowl, but you're right. It's definitely not. I mean, now you wouldn't blink an eye if you saw that stat, but even in the '80s, it was pretty, you know, pretty new to use a tight end in that way in the offense. So it's interesting that again you see the parallels between Belichick's team in the '80s versus Belichick's team, you know, in the early 2000s or late. Tens, I guess, at that point. But yeah, I mean, it makes total sense that he would want to look for players in that mold and that, that he did. So just to kind of round off that story, the Giants actually ended up beating the Packers 55-24. to 24. So it, it did end up working for them. And all in all, the Giants would finish the season at 14-2 and two and would basically be in great position to make a deep run into the playoffs. After a loss in week one, they would go on to win 14 out of their next 15 games. And the defense only gave up 14.8 points per game in that season. So you can really tell, like, it's coming together. LT is basically entering the prime of his career at this point. You have, you know, players like George Martin and, and Leonard Marshall were, you know, at defensive end. Jim Burt was the nose tackle. You had, you know, LT as the edge rusher, Gary Reasons, uh, Harry Carson, and Carl Banks. That linebacking core is basically the heart and soul of the defense, and as you can see by the stats. Exactly, the big blue wrecking crew, exactly. They started using that name, you know, in the early 80s for their linebacking core, but in my opinion, this is kind of when it all came together, obviously, and it bears itself out in the stats, basically. Mm -hmm. So... Basically, at 14-2, and two, they made it into the playoffs. The first game against the 49ers, the Giants actually only had 13 yards rushing in their regular season game. So before that playoff game, Parcells actually had a nickname for his offensive line, and he called them Club 13 because they could only muster 13 yards rushing. <laughs> so... Again, he knew that those players would take it personally, but also come ready to play and motivated to prove the coach wrong. Because obviously Parcells knew, you know, what kind of talent they had. And they had, you know, Joe Morris running the ball uh, behind that offensive line. They should have done better. The Giants actually would end up crushing the 49ers in the playoffs 49-3. to So wow. clearly, you know, the game plan worked. The defense was able to stop Joe Montana and Jerry Rice at that point as well, I, I might add. So, you know, they, A young Jerry Rice. Young Jerry Rice, but Joe Montana and Jerry Rice nonetheless. Basically, they would just blow them out, and then the next matchup was against Washington. At that point, they were called the Redskins, but I will be referring to them as Washington. Just putting that out there. In the game against Washington, they actually ended up winning and blanking them 17 to nothing. Joe Morris had 181 rushing yards and two touchdowns. So they basically played that ball control style of football that, you know, will come back in 1990. However, the winds were blowing at 40 miles per hour throughout the stadium, which affected the punts for the Redskins, but not really for the Giants. Punter Sean Landetta averaged over 40 yards a punt, and that helped them to win the field position battle as well. I mentioned him only because... In the 1985 game against the Bears, which they lost, Landetta actually had threw the ball up in the air to kick it, and it got blown away. So he completely missed the kick, and the Bears ended up recovering. But in this game, 
he was able to kick through 40 mile per hour winds and be a, a real factor for the Giants. Um, Man, these East Coast playoff games, they like, weather plays such a factor. I know, I know. And like, I feel like nowadays more teams are in domes for that reason, which I kind of understand in terms of it affecting the product on the field, quote unquote. I do enjoy when the weather is definitely a factor, and that's when you kind of know who who the cream of the crop is in terms of who's going to make it through. One of the reasons why some coaches fail is that they want to institute a style that's not, that doesn't complement like the environment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you play in a cold weather city, you should be more focused on retaining possession and, and grinding with the ball, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to institute this like high flying offense and spread your wide receivers. Right. And if you're not able to play in cold weather, if you're just trying to play in this like neutral, like setting up your offense to play in a neutral territory, I find that you're not going to be as successful. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's like so. The opposite would be said, like in in Miami, you kind of want speed because when a lot of these players come down there and they're not accustomed to to the humidity and heat, they get gassed out. Right. But if your team is is used to it and they're fast you know, they're equipped for the environment. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that front. And There has to be some, like, there has to be, when building a team, I feel like there has to be some consideration to the environment that hosts your team. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, nowadays a lot of coaches just want to put in their play style, and they don't really think about that. Well, yeah, I think just generally you kind of have to be adaptable to that philosophy or adaptable to the weather as well as the the matchups on any given Sunday. But I think, you know, the best teams, I guess the old cliche would be that defense wins championships and that you have to be able to run the ball, you know, when you're playing playoff football, especially as the weather gets colder, which, I mean, obviously are two qualities, probably two of the best qualities of this Giants team. But then it goes back to, you know, the Giants opening up the offense a little more, like when they need to pass and when they need to play with speed, uh, they can. And when they need to run the ball, you know, they were able to. And obviously the defense kind of locked out their opponents, basically. I mean, at this point, through two playoff games, and this is in the NFC Championship game, so... When the NFC East was good. Right, exactly. (laughs) You realize as we're recording this, all four NFC East teams have a top five pick in the NFL draft. If it were if the season were to end today. A top five really? Draft pick. Oh my god. Wow. Well, hopefully uh, you know, NFC East can return to the glory days again then with those picks. Why not? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The NFC East is pretty pathetic, so, I mean, part of me is, like, you know, glad to be reading about these epic, you know, showdowns versus, of Joe Gibbs versus Bill Parcells and, you know, Washington. Without being on the East Coast, like, general, well, you're in Scotland now. Yeah. But growing up on the East Coast Mm -hmm. in Canada, you know, these, when the prime, these games are prime time, right? Like, these games are are pretty important because they're close to, close to home. Yeah. And when the teams are good, makes for some interesting matches definitely and i think a lot of that is kind of to do with the marketing of it all like you get big market teams in new york and you know philadelphia and and dallas cowboys obviously are you know probably the 
most profitable NFL franchise, even though they're not very good this season, you know? But, like, I think regardless of how well the NFC East is doing on the field, you know, you're always going to get primetime matchups with, with the NFC. It's just a, just a function of, I guess, you know, American markets and such. After giving up three points in the first two playoff games, they were headed to face the Denver Broncos and John Elway in the Super Bowl. Prior to the Super Bowl happening, Disney had actually approached Phil Simms to be a part of a new ad campaign to say that he wanted to go to Disneyland. Actually, they had approached both quarterbacks before the game, and John Elway agreed, and Phil Simms actually refused at first. Was um, this the first time they used a Disneyland? Yes. Yeah. In the Super Bowl? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was the first time that, that Disney had implemented this new ad campaign. And you can see it now, like, they'll say it every once in a while. Sometimes I know that uh, Peyton Manning said something about Budweiser or whatever when the Broncos won. When asked about retirement, he just said he just wants to go home and have a couple Budweiser. (laughs) How cheesy is that, eh? You know, like, he ain't wrong. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I mean, hey, you know. (laughs) <laughs> Gotta get that money, I guess, when you have the opportunity. So that bag, exactly. Yeah. Especially it being the last game of your career. Exactly. Why not? Despite being down ten to nine at the half, Phil Sims led the Giants to five straight scoring drives in the second half. And Sims went twenty-two for twenty-five with two hundred and sixty-eight yards and three touchdowns, and set a Super Bowl record for completion percentage with eighty-eight percent of his passes being complete in the game. He also had 10 consecutive completions in the game, which was a record at the time, and two drop passes in the game. Wow. Which means that he only threw one incompletion that didn't actually hit a receiver in the hands. So That was his fault. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he played pretty much perfectly. Like You can't really ask a quarterback to play better than Phil Sims had actually played in the game. Basically, Sims... Uh, after the game, they beat the Broncos, and he got a Gatorade bath at the end of the game, and he was also the first person to say that he's going to go to Disneyland. So the Gatorade bath is interesting because they ended up dumping the Gatorade on Bill Parcells as well, and it harkens back to the previous story where Bill Parcells had taken the trash and dumped it all over his defense. Wow. So that's when players from his defense seeked him out at the end of the game, grabbed the Gatorade, and dumped it on his head as a kind of a revenge to be like, oh, yeah, you know, look who's talking now, you know, kind of thing. It's sweet. You know what I mean? Like, it's a it's a great revenge prank because, what is he going to say? You just won the Super Bowl, yeah, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, uh, yeah, and it's interesting. Now we, those things we sort of take for granted, right? The saying, I'm going to Disneyland, and then now we even bet on the color of the Gatorade shower. Yeah, exactly. But I'm wondering, do they record both quarterbacks? Because it has to come pretty, the ad comes pretty quickly after the game. Mm-hmm. Do you think they pre-record both? No, both because it would have been, you mean like for the Disney, for like the ad, you mean? Yeah, because I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I was watching an America's game and it was the Cincinnati Bengals, I think the following year mm. against the against the San Francisco 49ers, and they were actually filming an ad with Boomer because the Bengals were in the lead, but right. then Joe Montana came back in the fourth quarter and ended up winning the Super Bowl. Right. So 
I, I'm pretty sure it was the, the Disneyland ad. So they'd have to do like a pre-recording because then they launched the ad right away. Sort of like with the Super Bowl champion t-shirts. Mm. They have copies of them. Yeah. And they send the t-shirts to Africa. <laughs> Half the world thinks that... Uh, the 2000 Giants won the Super Bowl. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know about so, the pre-record. I mean, that's probably probably right about the you know pre-recording it, but it seems like bad karma or like bad juju to do that before the game is over. Obviously, you know, if, exactly. if the Bengals ended up losing the game right after yeah. he records his victory, uh, you know, victory interview. But anyway, but going back to the actual game, yeah, it's funny how you mentioned that the outcomes of both playoff games versus the actual Super Bowl on the offensive side, it looked completely different. Like mm-hmm. again, Washington and the 49ers, they like control the ball. They run the ball. They really depend on their running game and the, their offensive line. Whereas like mm-hmm. during the Super Bowl, Phil Sims were, was able to have such an efficient game and he essentially won them, won them the game. Right. Yeah. And it just goes back to how, Parcells and even Belichick now, they emphasize the idea of being multiple mm-hmm. on offense, the ability to do both things given the situation, you know, yeah. lean on one versus the other. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to what I was talking about in terms of being adaptable or being multiple, as you'd mentioned, right? Like they were a good enough team that they could win, you know, either way, either way. Yeah. It and- seems like... Parcells' teams, they might not be necessarily the best in one single statistic, but their baseline, their like floor is always significantly better than, than most teams in the NFL. Exactly. Same thing. It's the same thing. Like you see that sort of pattern, especially with the new age of free agency and the Patriots. Like their defenses have always been pretty solid and obviously on offense as well, but they've never necessarily had multiple pro bowlers on each team mm-hmm. on Brady. Right. Right. Like defense, you have a really high floor and a lot of these guys are really productive, but they're not necessary and they're blue chip, but they're not necessarily the top tier of their position throughout the NFL. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I will say though, like after the season, the giants actually did have eight pro bowlers on the squad. Now a lot of that is a function of them, you know, making it to the Super Bowl and obviously going 14-2 and two on the year. But, I mean, you're right in terms of they're just all-around really solid team. Although, you know, Sims had some of his doubters, he was able to put on a performance. And, and you're right, they won in a different style than they did in the NFC playoff games, for sure. I will say that they actually set a record, the Giants did, for all-time composite margin of victory in the playoffs. So the combined score from all three of their games was 105 to 23. Joe Morris had over 1,500 yards rushing on the season, and Bill Parcells ended up winning Coach of the Year unanimously in all of the national polls. The Giants were 10 and 0 at home, including regular season and two playoff games. And it's interesting actually because after the game, a young Bill Belichick. Oh, his name always seems to pop up, but. Young Bill Belichick was celebrating with the team in the locker room and went outside to take a photo of the stadium. The security guard didn't actually recognize him and didn't let him back into the locker room <laughs> at first. So obviously, like, he was still making a name for himself. Sure. <laughs> Who's this East Coast lacrosse player trying to get into the <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> 
This was Parcells' first victory, first Super Bowl victory as as coach of the Giants. It was well deserved. I mean, they were fourteen and two, and only lost two games on the whole season. You know, it was clear that that Parcells had had built a winner, and and that the hiring of George Young had actually really come in handy for the Giants to to be able to to build a contender. So after the nineteen eighty six season, it's interesting because the Atlanta Falcons actually offered Bill Parcells a position as head coach and general manager of the franchise. However, the opportunity of a lifetime for Parcells was blocked by the commissioner at the time, as this would have been a breach of his contract. The 1987 season was cut short due to the players' strike, but they were able to rebound in 1988, going 10-6 and but missing the playoffs due to a tiebreaker. See, uh, that's one of the reasons why the NFC East was so strong. Like, you know, it was harder to win on the Giants side because their, their division was so tough. You know, mm-hmm. ten and six is usually playoff picture, but in a division as hard as the Giants had it with the Redskins and the Eagles, mm-hmm. you know, Dallas wasn't quite there yet in the late eighties. They were always competing. You know what I mean? It wasn't just a, a simple walk through to the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. Well, think about it. I mean, Washington actually ended up winning some Super Bowls in the late eighties, and then mm-hmm. Philly. I guess hired Buddy Ryan from the '85 Bears, and then that's when, like, late '80s, early '90s is when Randall Cunningham was playing with them, and he was ripping up the league. Reggie White. Reggie White, exactly. And then, obviously, well, not obviously, but the Cowboys were kind of in a transitional phase anyway. As you go into the '90s, this is when they started hiring Jimmy Johnson, and then obviously they would build their own dynasty within the '90s. So, I mean. The entire NFC East, you're right, is way more competitive than you would <laughs> imagine if you looked at it today. But you know, it was it was a, basically a premier division in, in football, man. Like, there's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, just to round it off, Tom Coughlin would actually be hired as the wide receiver coach in 1988. And 1988 would also mark the first start for backup QB Jeff Hostetler, who. Originally came in for mop-up duty against the Saints that year. However, you know, he would have a much more important role to play in the following years of the Giants, which is where we will leave this podcast for now, unless you have anything else to add, Theo. Just that, it's interesting, I didn't know that in 1986, the Falcons actually offered that position to Parcells, Mm -hmm. which would, you know, put him on the same level as like, Tom Landry, and I know he's he's always wanted more control, as as we could see later on with his stint in New England and stuff, and then consequently the jobs he takes afterwards. Mm-hmm. But did he really? My question is, did he really? Was he considering the job? Like, did he? Was he going to take it? Had the commissioner not blocked the breach of contract? From what I had found online. He would have taken the job, but it would have been blocked, obviously, as a breach of his contract. That would have been so interesting. Yeah. Given the following trajectory, you know, like 1986, takes the job in 87. Coughlin might not even be hired in 88. Right. You know, the Falcons actually do end up offering Parcells an executive position, like in 2008, before he takes the Dolphins role. Because I know Arthur Blank really wanted someone like him in his organization. You see the potential is there, right, for him to be kind of head of uh, football operations. And, you know, he strikes me as the kind of guy that, you know, if 
the opportunity arose for him to, you know, move on to bigger and better things, then he would have, he would have done it. Imagine if that domino had fallen. You're right. I mean, the entire history of the NFL would have been shifted in a very different way, in my opinion. You know, does does Belichick get a chance to coach the Giants if he takes the job position right away? Exactly. Exactly. Does Coughlin get hired? Exactly. I mean, do the Falcons make noise in the NFC? You know, starting in the you know late '80s and such. Like, that's the thing. There's so many different hypothetical scenarios that could have been when you're looking at you know moves that were kind of nixed in the NFL. But it's just interesting to think about it and and realize like how different things could be. I think that's everything for the 1986 episode. We'll leave you now with this kind of hanging in the balance, the first Super Bowl victory for the Giants. If you enjoyed it, please let us know. Follow Checkdown Charlie's on Twitter, and thanks again for listening, everybody. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlie's on Twitter and at CheckdownCharlie's on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.